We're returning to our sermon series today called Lies About God. So far we've looked at several of the most notable lies being told in our culture and in the church. We looked at the lie that Jesus is a socialist. We've looked at the lie that God does not exist, the lie that God is gay. Today we are going to look at a lie that says this, the lie that you are God. From pharaohs to mad scientists, many throughout history have sought the one thing that neither money nor power can secure, and that is immortality. The dream of discovering the mythical fountain of youth is very much alive today, especially among the global elites. Jeff Bezos is not just the founder of Amazon and one of the world's wealthiest men, but he's also interested in eternal life and not the kind that Jesus offers. Recently in an interview, Bezos was asked, what would you like your legacy to be? And he answered, the world's oldest man. It sounds like a joke, but Bezos made headlines earlier this year when he invested, listen to this, $3 billion in Altos Labs. That's a biotech company focused on cellular rejuvenation programming to restore health and resilience. One article reported, quote, Bezos hopes to find the secret to reverse the aging process and increase human longevity. How does that sound? Bezos isn't the only one with plans to cheat death. Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook creator, has also pledged $3 billion To his own biotech lab, Zuckerberg stated his goal was, quote, as technology accelerates, we have a real shot at preventing, curing, or managing all or most diseases in the next 100 years. You may remember Jared Kushner. He's the son-in-law of former President Trump. Kushner is also investing in cutting-edge genetics to reverse aging and help humans, as he says, take the next step of evolution. He said this, quote, I think there's a good probability that my generation, hopefully with advances in science, is either the first generation to live forever or the last generation that's going to die. There's another man, Huval Noah Harari, he's an Israeli professor and scholar. He's an author. He's also a card-carrying member of the World Economic Forum, and he's BFF with the Great Reset. In 2021, Harari appeared on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper, in which he gave this prediction about where he saw humanity was going. He said this, quote, We are one of the last generations of Homo sapiens. We will soon have the power to re-engineer our bodies and brains, whether it is with genetic engineering or by directly connecting brains to computers or by creating completely non-organic entities using artificial intelligence. And these technologies are developing at breakneck speed, he said. Human history began when men created gods and will end when men become gods. And that's the lie we're dealing with today, that you are God. 
Now, what these billionaires are advocating sounds like science fiction. But it's actually a growing movement called transhumanism. Not to be confused with transgenderism, this is transhumanism. And we're all familiar with the old school humanism. That's the philosophy that man is the measure of all things. It's the belief that mankind has the potential to solve his problems through science and technology. And humanism doesn't look to God for answers about the universe or what happens after death and all of those questions. Transhumanism goes one step further. It's the worldview which believes that humanity will surpass its current limitations and evolve to the next stage of development by merging with computers or artificial intelligence. Humanism says man created God, but transhumanism says man is God. And there you see the Time Magazine cover, 2045. That's the projected date. When man will ultimately merge with machine, we will become one with the matrix, so to speak, and we will have unlimited potential and power through the use of technology. Now, many commentators have chided the transhumanist goals as foolish pipe dreams, but really embedded in these massive egos and these bulging bank accounts is a lie that we must debunk. The lie that says you are God or that man can play God. And in today's message, we're going to see how this ancient lie has future implications. And really, we're going to go all through Scripture. We're going to go back to the beginning, and then we're going to go to the end. And we're going to see how this lie that you are God, that man is God, not only defines our past, but we will see it in the future. First thing I want you to see today as we study, number one, the seductive deception of humanism. The deceptive, seductive deception of humanism. If you've got your Bible, go to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, and we'll be looking at a familiar passage, Genesis chapter 3. Let's read together. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the lie of humanism is actually as old as humanity itself. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see that God made man in His image and He put them in a perfect garden. He called them Adam and Eve and then trouble came slithering into the garden in the person of Satan the serpent. Notice verse 5 and 6 again, or verse 4 and 5 rather. He said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. And here it is. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan's strategy from the beginning was subtle but effective. 
First, he planted a seed of doubt in their minds. That was in verse 1. He got them to put a question mark where God had put a period. Did God say? He used doubt. Then when you get to verse 4, he used another tactic called denial. And he flat outright lied to them. He said, you will not die. Then in verse 5, he moved to discrediting the character of God. He says, look, God is holding out on you. God knows that if you get this power, you'll be like Him, and He doesn't want that. So He got them to question the goodness and the character of God. And by the way, when Satan tempts us today, he uses this same threefold strategy. He gets us to doubt the Word of God. He gets us to question whether the Word of God is really true or whether God has our best interests in mind. Then He denies it. He contradicts it. He sugarcoats a lie to make it more palpable, and then he discredits God, he defames God's character to the point to where we think God can't be trusted. Now the big lie that Satan deceived our parents with is really an incipient form of humanism. That is, that we can choose our own fate and play by our own rules. That we can decide what's right and wrong. That man is the measure of all things and we don't need God to tell us what to do. Satan got them to believe that they could actually live as little gods not beholden to their maker. And that's really the essence of, of all rebellion against God. I love what Erwin Lutzer wrote about this. He said in one of his books, quote, Satan's goal in the beginning was to set up a rival religion that makes sense to man but which he would control from backstage. Satan was competing with God for the allegiance of man, and he wanted humans to think they were experiencing the divine when actually they were obeying the devil, rebelling against his authority. His goal was not to make Adam and Eve atheists, but to persuade them to serve another God. They had been introduced to the lie that now would rule the world. The lie that the creature can be the creator. All other lies are but an extension of this one, he said. Every time we sin, we affirm the original lie of Eden. So you can see how this form of humanism goes all the way back to the seed plot of the Bible, to the very first sin, and the reason why we are in the situation we're in today. It doesn't take long to realize how attractive this lie is to a fallen person. Right? Which message sounds more attractive to the fallen flesh of man? You've fallen short of God's glory and you're a sinner or you're a little God who has unlimited potential, you just don't know it yet. Which one are, are you going to get more people on board with? The lie is with us today. Not just in transhumanism, but in something called New Age Spirituality. If you don't know what that is, your kids and teenagers probably do because they're on TikTok, they're on social media, and this is everywhere. I talked to you a little bit earlier in a previous message about millennials. That's my generation, and then Gen Zers, those afterward. Did you know that they are considered to be, millennials and Gen Zers, the most non-religious, they're the nuns as they've been called, well, when they ask the millennials and the Gen Zers what they are, they say, well, we're not 
We're not religious, but we are spiritual. 72% said that they affirmed that. What exactly does that mean? I don't really know. But it gets to the heart of this thing called New Age spirituality. One of the gurus of this new religion is a man named Deepak Chopra. His books have sold millions, and he's buddy-buddy with Oprah. That's why he is as popular as he is. He's an example of humanism and mysticism, and here's what he teaches, and young people eat this stuff up like candy. Here's his message. Quote, I used to be an atheist until I realized I was God. After reading the Bible, he said, I learned that Jesus was not the one and only Son of God. What Bible are you reading, dude? He continued, rather, Jesus embodied the highest level of enlightenment. Jesus intended to save the world by showing others the path to God consciousness. And here's what he said, the kingdom of heaven is in us. We are gods, we just don't know it. Wow. And now it makes sense why the world is the way it is today. Why we are raising the most narcissistic, self-centered generation that's ever been on the face of the earth. The snowflake generation. The participation trophy generation who was coddled and given everything and a safe space and free college and free this and free that. They think the world owes them everything. And they think they are God that whatever they think... Reality will just adjust itself. That's why I can change my biology. I can change my sex if I want to. That's why the government owes me money for college and other entitlements because it's all about me. I am God. That's why our culture is the way it is today. It's the same lie in Genesis chapter 3. And we're living in it now, no holes barred. How do you like it? Number one, that's the seductive deception of humanism. Then number two, I want you to see this, the sinful desire of humanism. What do the humanists want? What's the end goal? Well, the ultimate goal of humanism is power, control, and autonomy. It's the same thing humans have always wanted in their long rebellion against God. Now, this attitude is expressed best in the beginning of Psalm 2 where we read in that passage about a conspiracy among the nations of the world to overthrow God. How crazy does that sound? We looked at this passage earlier on in the year, but let's read it again. Psalm 2, we'll just read the first Three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, it's next to impossible to get world leaders to agree on anything. But in the first stanza of this psalm, 
the writer describes a global coalition of world leaders who unanimously agree to go to war against God. And really, this is a picture of Armageddon. At the end, when all the nations of the world gather uh, to fight against Christ, it's what this is previewing. But I love what Warren Wiersbe wrote about this. He said, quote, From the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the crucifixion of Christ to the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, he said, The Bible records man's foolish and futile rebellions against the will of his Creator. That's why I say there really are no atheists. You've heard me say that before. Because you're going to worship something. You're either going to worship the true and living God Or in the case of the skeptic or the atheist, you're going to worship yourself. You're going to worship an idol that you have made. And this goes to this live humanism. We don't want God to be the God of us. We want to be independent of God. We want to tell Him what to do. Why do these nations, though, in this passage, plot the death of God's Messiah? Well, I think it's all there in verse 3. Did we read it? Let's look at it again. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Man, like a caged beast, wants to throw off all of God's rules and God's restraints so that they can live without any moral accountability. That's where we are in 21st century America. We have undertaken a grand social experiment now where we're saying, oh, there's no such thing as marriage anymore. It's just free love. There's no such thing as man and woman anymore. You just create how many genders you want. And we throw off the definitions and the boundaries and the restraints that God has put everywhere. And look at what you get. The world that we're living in. It was Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist, who said this. He said, quote, if God is dead... Somebody's going to have to take his place. It will be megalomania or erotomania. The drive for power or the drive for pleasure. Hedonism or humanism. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. That's where our world is heading. According to Psalm chapter 2. All you have to do is open a history book and read and see how humanism is responsible for creating some of the world's worst monsters we've ever seen. I hear skeptics all the time. How could you be a Christian? Just look at all the injustices, all of the terrible things done in the name of Christ. And yes, there are some down through history. We acknowledge that, but they weren't following the Jesus of the Bible. And yet, the atheist conveniently forgets about Hitler and Mao and Stalin And all these men who literally lived out the skeptic and the atheistic worldview to the hilt, and we had more deaths in the 20th century than all the previous 19 centuries combined. You tell me which is the worst atrocity. But what do you get when you live out this sinful desire of humanism? Well, you get Timothy McVeigh. He's an example of this. Remember he was caught in 1995 for perpetrating the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. In that explosion, McVeigh took the lives of 168 people, 19 of which were children, and over 600 more suffered injuries. It was the worst act of terrorism in the United States until 9-11. 
But in 2001, Timothy McVeigh was executed by a lethal injection. And reporters who witnessed his final moments say that at the end, he remained unrepentant. Imagine spending your life bringing death, destruction, pain, and suffering into the lives of so many people, getting up to the very end and clenching your fists in the face of God. Here's what he said. These were his last words. He quoted Invictus, the 1875 poem by William Ernest Henley, in which he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's humanism toward its end. I wonder if his attitude has changed now, Brother Stan, that he has split eternity wide open and seen the awful lie that he believed. Everybody's bold in the face of God on this side, but friend, the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. And I guarantee you some of these folks who have lived by this lie, oh, when it's too late, they wished they could have changed their mind. The sinful desire of humanism. Then let's move on. Number three, where's this all going? Well, the satanic dictator of humanism. We've looked at the past. We've looked at the present. We can see why the world is in the shape that it's in because of this life. But where's it going? Well, the Bible has something to say about what's coming down the pipe. You see, the ancient lie that man is God also has future prophetic implications. And if you think Timothy McVeigh was bad... The final world dictator is going to make him look like Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. You see, Bible prophecy tells us that during the last seven years of human history, a period known as the tribulation, that one man will gain total control over the world politically, economically, and religiously. He's best known by the title, the Antichrist. He actually has about 26 other different aliases in the Bible He's called the man of sin, the son of perdition, the beast. But you read about him in Revelation 13 and 2 Thessalonians 2. And the Antichrist will not only establish his own worldwide cult, but he will demand total allegiance and worship. And if you refuse, you'll be put to the sword. But the Bible explains, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Antichrist is going to have an epic reveal. When he enters the newly built Jerusalem temple at the midpoint of the tribulation, that's halfway through, 3.5 years into the tribulation, he will go into the temple and the Bible says he will announce to the world that what? He's God. Notice what 2 Thessalonians 2 says. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Watch this, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That's why the Bible says that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. There's a man being groomed for this. To be the final world dictator. To be Satan's CEO. In fact, in Revelation 13... The Bible tells us that the Antichrist, or the beast as he is called in that chapter, will be able to sway people so easily. 
How easy is it to deceive people today? Pretty easy. They've already got the tool in the palm of their hand. It's on a little screen. And it tells people how to think and how to vote and what to buy and what to believe. I believe it. I read it on the internet. Well, then it must be true, right? Good grief. We ought to be opening up the Word of God and letting the eternal truth of God's Word renew our mind. I wish I didn't have to have a smartphone. I remember what life was like, Brother Stacy, before we had those things. Remember, you went to a box and you put a quarter in? If you was out somewhere and you dialed a number? Those of you born, you know... After the year 2000, you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Yeah, it brings convenience, and yet it brings the world into the palm of our hands, but you know what it does? It unleashes evil and mind control on people. You think I'm, go- I'm, I'm crazy. You think I'm going a little bit too far. No, this is the stuff that the Antichrist is going to use one day to deceive the masses. It's already being used. Revelation 13 tells us what's going to happen. Watch what it says, verse 4. And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, that's three and a half years, half the tribulation period. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and it is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given to it over every tribe and people and nation. You read that passage 50 years ago, and you say, Preacher, there's no way one man will be able to rule the world. And now today you read it, oh yeah. You can see how it's possible. How people can be deceived. I mean, if you can get people to believe the lie that they are God, it's not a far step to move to something else like Revelation 13. So just a few decades ago, it was difficult to see how one man would be able to control our world. But now with the advent of all the technology we have at our disposal, it's easy to see how a man, satanically empowered and maybe even genetically enhanced could do these things. Earlier I mentioned the billionaires who were pouring all these monies into these laboratories and trying to genetically enhance humans to the next level. Not only do the transhumanists want immortality, but you know what else they want? Superintelligence. What I'm going to tell you may sound fringe. It may sound weird, but friend, it's not a conspiracy theory if they tell you this is what they want to do. Okay? So keep that in mind. Because I don't want to be branded some crazy, wacko, left-field preacher. I'm just telling you what they've already told us. Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, you know he's working on a device right now called Neuralink? It's a device 
They can be implanted in the brain, and the goal is to seamlessly marry humans with computers. Here's what he said. He said, quote, Neuralink contains more than 3,000 electrodes attached to flexible threads, thinner than a human hair. It will enable anyone to have superhuman cognition by connecting our brains to a global computer network, merging our biology with AI. This, he said, would create a new layer of superintelligence in humans which would make the endless info we already have available in our phones and devices instantly downloadable to our brains. In other words, what they're saying is, we're just one degree removed from that ability already. You can pull out a phone and you have all of the gathered human information from all the ages right there. You can access it with a tap of your finger. Musk is saying, let's remove that. Let's just put the chip in your brain and you can instantly think about it and have all that information readily available. Who wants to sign up for that implant? Hmm? However, Musk has openly stated that if this kind of technology gets loose, it could be used for great evil. No, duh. <laughs> Listen to what he said, though. At a tech conference at MIT, he said, quote, If I were to guess at what our biggest existential threat is, it's probably AI. I'm increasingly inclined to think that there should be some regulatory oversight, maybe at the international level, to make sure that we don't do something very foolish. And then he said this, When it comes to artificial intelligence... We are summoning the demon. My, my. Now let's put all this together and think about where we're heading and what the Bible has told us prophetically. When and if this technology becomes available, who do you think is going to be the first to get it? Well, it won't be you and me because we won't be able to afford it. But the super wealthy will. And isn't it fascinating that you, here you have the interplay of all these things coming together. You have a world that's falling apart, a world that's in disarray, a world that's in crisis after crisis. I mean, what's going to be the next thing? We just thought, oh, it's going to go back to normal after COVID. No, it's going to be another crisis and another crisis and another one because that's how they keep people stirred up. But you have a world falling apart and in disarray, and you have people then looking for problems and a solution to marry technology and man together and one day, the man at the helm will be more than willing to strap that on and summon the demon. And his name will be the Antichrist. And millions upon millions of people will be crying out for a Mr. Fix-It. Can he fix our economy? Can he fix the supply chain shortages? Can he get the war to stop? Can he fix the elections? Can he do... I mean, you name it. He'll be the Mr. Fix-It. But there's a trade-off. You trade a little bit of your freedom. Actually, all your freedom. So that you can be controlled. And he'll take care of you. That's where the world's heading. And you know what? If you don't know Jesus Christ today, I would run to this altar. I would find... A Savior who's full of mercy and grace because this is where the world is heading. And friend, you do not want to be left behind in a world 
where one man is God. So what's the solution to all this? Number four, and I'm done with this. We see number four, the sovereign destroyer of humanism. I'm thankful, friend, that it ain't over until God says it's over. And Jesus is the one who gets the last word. Man proposes, but God disposes. And you can trace this lie of humanism. It started in the Garden of Eden, and it will end at the Battle of Armageddon. The lie that man can be God is what caused humanity to fall in the beginning, and it's the same lie that's going to lead man into the delusion that he will be able to fight God in a climactic battle. And in fact, Revelation 19 says that the Antichrist will gather the armies of the world to gather at Armageddon and declare war against Christ when he returns. How foolish do you have to be? Look what the Bible says, Revelation 19, verse 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on his horse and against his army. How dumb, how deluded, how prideful and arrogant do you have to be to think you can pick a fight with God Almighty and you've got a fighting chance to win. But you know what happens, don't you? Oh, it's over before it even starts. Humanism will meet its doom in a split second as long as it takes King Jesus to whisper one word. It'll all be over. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8. And the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And then notice what... Uh, Psalm 2 and verse 9 says, You, speaking of Jesus, He shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, friend, I don't know what He's going to say. I don't know how He's going to say it. But I have an idea that the one who stood out on the balcony of nothing and called all the stars and galaxies into existence by just the power of His Word. I ain't feeling sick no more. I may preach just a little bit right here. The one who stood out on the bow of the boat during the sea, uh, the storm at the Sea of Galilee and said, Peace, be still. He's going to plant His feet on the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk across the Valley of Kidron. He'll have the church behind him. Uh, better get ready to ride a white horse because you're coming back with him. He's going to stand there against the armies of the Antichrist. And I don't know what he's going to say, but I think he'll say something like this. Enough. Enough sin. Enough destruction. Enough deception. Enough of this playing games. Enough of these lies. It'll all be over. My goodness. That's why I have hope today. That's why I don't get down and discouraged too much when things don't go our way in this country. Because I know the one who's really calling the shots. And I know the one who's going to have the final say so. And I know the one who's never going to be voted out of office. He's never going to lose his power. He'll never be impeached. His name is King Jesus. David Jeremiah tells this story in one of his books about three young hooligans in the 1930s who boarded a bus 
and tried to pick a fight with a passenger who was sitting in the back. They threw insults at him and called him names. The man said nothing in response. Eventually the bus came to a halt. The big old boy in the back stood up, broad shoulders, massive hands. I'm talking about a big old corn-fed boy. He walked up to the front where those little hooligans were sitting. He handed them a business card, tipped his hat, got off the bus. You know what the card said? Joe Lewis, professional boxer. Those boys had tried to pick a fight with the future heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Imagine how shocked and foolish and relieved these boys felt when they learned that the man that they had harassed could have pummeled them with ease with one hand tied behind his back. And the same is true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh friend, he's held back his wrath. He's held back uh, his judgment for long times in merciful patience. But upon his return, there'll be nothing that he will be holding back then. And imagine how terrible the beatdown is going to be for those who have lived by lies and those who have ruined this creation and those who have lived under sin and clenched their fists in the face of God. One day they're going to learn that their arms are too short to box with God. Hey, if death couldn't beat him, if Satan couldn't defeat him, if the grave couldn't hold him in the ground, what makes you thank your God and that you can stand up to the one who conquered it all. He's going to be declared the all-time undisputed, undefeated champion. So what does this mean? It means this. Three effects it should have on us. First, it compels us. We should compel the lost, to turn to Christ for their salvation while there's still time. We should be compelled to stand faithfully because the King is coming. It comforts us. Friend, evil's not going to prevail. There's a payday someday. God's going to even the scales of justice. Nobody's going to be getting away with anything. We have hope. And it cleanses us. We ought to be living a holy and a Christ-honoring life in a dark and corrupt world because when He comes, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found standing on the Word of God. I want to be found working and watching and worshiping because He said the Son of Man will come at an hour you do not expect. Man wants to be God, but God became man. Man tries to live forever. Jesus came to die. Man wants total authority. Jesus came to stoop and wash dirty feet. Our altar is open now. Our musicians are coming. I don't know how this message may have spoke to you today, but if you'd like to respond, maybe you need Christ, maybe you need to repent of some sin. 
Maybe you need to be saved today. Maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you're burdened and you need to pray. I don't know, but as Preston leads us now in our invitation, I hope that the message spoke to you in some way. And if you need to respond, let's be obedient to what God's Spirit would have us to do. Can we stand today as we close?